0: We've given Russia two paths. There's a path of diplomacy and dialogue, one that I engaged in with Foreign Minister Lavrov uh, just last week in uh, in Geneva. But there's also a path of uh, its renewed aggression and massive consequences that we have been building now for many weeks.
1: The U.S. and its allies are becoming increasingly concerned that Russian President Vladimir Putin is about to order an invasion of Ukraine. American officials are warning Russia that there will be dire consequences if that happens.
0: If a single additional Russian force goes into Ukraine uh, in an aggressive way, uh, as I said, that would trigger uh, a swift, a severe, and a united response uh, from us uh, and from Europe.
1: Over the weekend, Secretary of State Antony Blinken spoke on CNN, NBC, and CBS about the U.S.'s commitment to standing with Ukraine. But things are escalating quickly.
2: So some 100,000 Russian troops are surrounding Ukraine's border. This buildup has caused a lot of alarm in the West and especially amongst U.S. officials because they believe an invasion is imminent. Secretary of State Antony Blinken even said last week that he thinks an invasion can come at any time.
1: We called Isabel Khrushudian, a foreign correspondent for The Post, based in Moscow. And we wanted to try to understand what is going on. When we talked to her on Monday morning, she was reporting from Kiev.
2: Ukrainians have said they're ready to fight this war themselves, that this is their territory to protect. And the Biden administration has said it's not going to send, you know, actual troops into Ukraine. There is a consideration to send some forces into NATO allies kind of near Ukraine. What has been coming in, even in just the past couple days, is more weapons and military aid. But the big thing, the big kind of thread on the table from the Biden administration are what is being sold as unprecedented economic sanctions being prepared against Russia in the event of an invasion.
1: From the newsroom of the Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Monday, January 24th. Today, is Russia about to invade Ukraine? And later in the show, we find out what is going on with 5G and airplanes. So just to give people a little bit more context here, can you talk a little bit about the lead up to this moment and the actions that Putin has been taking in and around Ukraine?
2: Yeah, how far back should I go? (laughs) (laughs) So the tensions between Ukraine and Russia run deep and there's a long history there. But the origin of the present day conflict really goes to 2014 when Ukrainian protesters toppled the pro-Russian government, what followed after that was Russia's invasion of Crimea, and then there was a separatist uprising in the Donbas region, which is in the east of Ukraine, where two territories broke off, and there was a lot of fighting. It was a war that, you know, has killed more than 13,000 people, maybe even more than 14,000 by some numbers, and Ukraine believes those separatists are basically Russian proxies. Hmm. There is certainly alive evidence that Russia arms them. And that war is ongoing, although obviously the heavy, heavy hostilities have long passed. So that has been kind of the status quo for eight years. I think where things changed in the past year is that the Kremlin started to have more issue with kind of what they consider NATO de facto expansion to
1: Ukraine. And what does that that mean when you say NATO expansion to Ukraine?
2: Yeah, so in 2008, NATO said that eventually Ukraine and also Georgia would become NATO members. Mm -hmm. But that process hasn't really gotten off the ground. However, we do see things like, you know, NATO countries providing military support as far as, you know, instructors for the army or weaponry and things of that sort coordinated training exercises in the Black Sea and other places. And that is the kind of defense cooperation that the Kremlin says is a direct threat to Russia.
3: Hmm. It
2: fears the next step is putting a long-range missile in Ukraine that could reach Moscow, even though there's been really no talk of Hmm. that. But that is kind of the Russian line that it feels threatened and it wants promises from the U.S. and from NATO allies that Ukraine will never, ever be admitted into NATO, and that this defense cooperation is going to stop.
1: And clearly, Russia has not received those promises from NATO and the U.S. and countries in Europe, and so they are essentially, like, trying to kind of stake their claim here, right?
2: Well, it's confusing because, you know, the Russians say that this buildup of forces around Ukraine is not in any way a threat to Ukraine. And everybody obviously responds to that. Well, then why don't you pull them back? Um, Mm. But, you know, they have repeatedly said that they do not intend to attack Ukraine, invade Ukraine, that these conversations with the U.S. and NATO are not tied to Ukraine in any way, or at least tied to, you know, their forces. That it's their business where they put their troops on their territory.
1: And that's what Russia is saying, but it seems clear that especially the U.S. doesn't really believe that, that there is a real concern here that Russia is about to invade Ukraine.
2: Yeah, I mean, there was a report declassified in December that The Washington Post obtained a copy of, and that cited, you know, a multi-pronged military invasion in the works that could involve, you know, 175,000 troops. Mm -hmm. We have seen Russia moving even more and more and more forces around Ukraine even, you know, in the recent weeks and pulling forces from as far as by the North Korean border. Russia's a really big country. I mean, they're traveling all across Russia to move West and around Ukraine. That's never happened before. Nothing about kind of what is happening with the redeployments of military is normal mm-hmm. um, or can be explained as being normal.
1: And how is President Biden and his administration approaching this? Like, what are the risks versus the rewards of getting more involved in helping to defend Ukraine?
2: So it's interesting because the Russians do not want to talk to the Ukrainians. They have made it clear that the only party they want to negotiate with here is the Americans. And there's several reasons for that. It's basically— Russia's way of telling the world that it doesn't consider Ukraine an independent functioning state, that it thinks it's a puppet of the West and basically the U.S. Mm. Ukrainians would obviously disagree with that. But a lot of these negotiations about NATO and about Ukraine's future and everything else are you know, happening without Ukraine at the table. They're happening with the U.S. side. Mm. So, you know, I think officials are... The way they're approaching this now is more dialogue is better. That, I mean, for Russia, to a degree, they've already kind of succeeded in getting a lot of what they want because these issues were never even discussed, right? That there could possibly be limits to NATO. And they've had a mm-hmm. seat at the table multiple times through diplomatic meetings in Geneva and other places in Europe and Brussels, U.S. officials are listening to them and are going to provide written responses to their demands. I think that's kind of the approach that we're seeing the Biden administration take, that it's going to engage on these conversations, even if it considers some of those asks non-starters.
1: Well, it feels like this brings up the question of how— President Biden approaches Russia more largely, right, that he came into office talking about being tough on Russia, tough on Putin, and yet this seems like the moment where that gets called into question or, like, how much are you willing to actually put force behind what you're saying?
2: Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think, oddly, you know, for all the talk of how, you know, Russia really liked Donald Trump— I mean, we we heard that for four years. <laughs> mm-hmm. I do think the Kremlin saw Biden as someone that they could work with, someone who was an experienced politician, would probably bring a little bit more normalcy to the relationship and someone who they could maybe talk to. And I think that much is happening. We've seen, you know, the two meet in person. We've seen them, you know, have this like virtual video conference, you know, in the past couple months. You know, there is a lot of dialogue going on. And then what probably freaked out all of Ukraine was in this press conference last week.
0: Well, Good afternoon, everyone.
2: Biden is being asked a lot of questions about his first year in office. And, you know, the tensions with Ukraine obviously come up. And I think this was clearly kind of a gaffe on his part. But he said, you know, oh, it kind of depends on what happens if it's a minor incursion.
0: Russia will be held accountable. If it invades, and it depends on what it does, it's one thing if it's a minor incursion and then we end up having to fight about what to do and not do, etc. But if they actually do what they're capable of doing with the force amassed on the border, it is going to be a disaster for Russia if they further invade Ukraine. And, uh, and
2: that uh, is a such of- a conflicting message from everything else, you know, the Biden administration has been saying that— you know, the second Russian troops go into Ukraine, there's going to be massive, massive consequences. Now it's like, well, wait, if the scale is not as big as you think it is, then are the consequences also not Mm -hmm. as big? You know, is taking a little bit of Ukraine okay? I mean, that's obviously how people took it. Mm -hmm. The White House did a lot of damage control after that with clarifying that any kind of Russian invasion on any level will trigger huge consequences. But still, it's a bad message, a bad look for the world, I think.
1: You know, we're talking a lot about what other countries are willing to do to defend Ukraine. But what does Ukraine want in all of this?
2: I think Ukraine just wants to be left alone. Um, (laughs) You know, obviously, they really want Western support. They want to be members of NATO. But, you know, I think the big thing is that, you know, Ukrainians, they don't understand what they did wrong. I mean, that's like the big thing I hear from people in Kiev you know, people out East, is they're like, why why is Russia obsessed with us, right? Like, why <laughs> does this keep happening to us? I mean, it, this kind of living in this fear of a Russian attack, living in this state where you think an invasion could happen, that's been reality for eight years because the tensions have been going on. So I think Ukrainians just kind mm-hmm. of want it to stop and want to have sovereignty away from Russia and feel like they can't escape this kind of pull from Moscow, that it wants to keep them in the sphere of influence, so to speak. During my trip to Ukraine last month, I sat down with Ukrainian Foreign Minister Dmitry Kuleba, and we talked about you know, what the Western response to a Russian invasion should be and kind of what support Ukraine needs right now.
3: We, Ukraine from the very beginning of this escalation came out and said uh, we propose our partners to prepare a comprehensive deterrence package that will consist of three layers. The first one is the political communication with Moscow at all levels from all corners. Don't do it, because if you do it, this is what's going to happen. The second layer is a set of painful, devastating sanctions, economic sanctions. And the third level is deepened military cooperation with Ukraine, suppl- strengthening our defense capabilities. The question that I think should be asked now mm-hmm. is the following. Since we are potentially, possibly, are weeks away from a military operation, what if this comprehensive deterrence package won't stop Putin? If there is a war tomorrow, mm-hmm. and sanctions will be slammed on, on Russia... Will they actually stop him? So the question is, what's going to happen if all of these activities and uh, deterrence fail? That is the question that really makes me concerned.
1: Obviously, what is going to transpire in the next few days and weeks has enormous stakes for Russia, for Ukraine. But I'm wondering for the rest of the world, like, why does this matter? What would an invasion of Ukraine by Russia signify?
2: I mean, we're we're talking about something really crazy here, which is a war in the heart of Europe that, you know, has huge consequences where, I mean, NATO has said that Ukraine is not an, a member, so it will not trigger Article 5. Obviously, NATO will not come to Ukraine's defense. But just for a world-based order, you know, to have a country invade its neighbor, potentially split it apart. I mean, we're talking about potential bombing, right, in Europe. It's a huge European security issue, and it's it's a huge issue for the world. What example does this set for? China and Taiwan. If it happens with Ukraine, does it continue on further? Are the Baltics next? If this happens, once it happens— Then there are a lot of other things that have to be considered about where is the end and how scary is this really? I live in Moscow, and so I just came here from Moscow. And probably the thing the people in Kiev and the people in Moscow have in common is that kind of nobody in either place believes this war is going to happen, while everyone in the U.S. does. I mean, when I tell my friends in Moscow, oh, I'm on my way to Ukraine, I don't know how long I'm going to be there reporting, you know, because Americans are really worried that a war is about to break out. I mean, people look at me like I have three heads. Nobody in Russia, (laughs) as far as like normal people go, think that this is happening. They think the idea that a Mm -hmm. war will start soon is absolutely insane. They have no interest in the sanctions that will come from this. And they just see no way it's going to happen. It is kind of funny that, I think people in the West, especially in the U.S., find this way more plausible and are way more nervous about it than people in the two countries involved, oddly.
1: That's so interesting. What do you make of that? Like, what do you think is going to happen here?
2: That's the thing. I don't I don't know. I don't think anybody except for Vladimir Putin knows. I don't even think Joe Biden knows. I could see Russia being like, well, we said we weren't going to invade and we didn't and do something totally different, potentially, that's, like, off the board. Or I could see them, you know, we have no idea how big the scale of the invasion would be. They could go full scale, which would be really crazy and awful because a lot of people would die on both sides. That's what's horrifying. So I don't know. I mean, I when this whole thing started, I would have put the chances at, like, you know, 2%, which is still a lot for war. A 2% chance is bad. And then just every day it gets worse and worse and now I'm at like some 70%, which is still terrifying. It's really bad.
1: Isabel Kershudian is a correspondent based in Moscow, and Matalkov produced this story. After the break, why the rollout of faster wireless is disrupting air traffic. We'll be right back.
0: This podcast is sponsored by Monarch Money. Are you saving to reach your financial goals? Reaching those goals isn't just about getting more money, but by managing what you have. And the best way to manage your money? Monarch Money. See why Mint users are turning to Monarch Money and loving it, and why the Wall Street Journal named Monarch Money the best budgeting app overall. Get a 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash podcast. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H money.com slash podcast for your free trial. monarchmoney.com slash podcast.
1: 5G cell service was turned on across America last week. And while it promises to give faster service to a lot of people, It's also raising concerns for airlines and airports. Last Thursday, some flights headed to San Francisco had to be diverted or even canceled because of concerns that the combination of 5G and bad weather could make it unsafe for planes to land. (laughs) —
4: This has been something that has been brewing for months and really has just come to a head in the last few weeks as airlines really began sounding the alarm about how the deployment of 5G might lead to cancellations, delays and diversions.
1: This is Lori Aratani. She covers transportation and aviation for The Post, and she has been reporting on this rollout of the super-fast 5G wireless network by AT&T and Verizon, and why the Federal Aviation Administration, or FAA, is so concerned about it.
4: The airwaves that 5G operates on are very close on the spectrum to where these Aviation safety systems operate, particularly what they call a radar altimeter.
1: This is basically a navigational system that's on all planes. It's also known as a radio altimeter.
4: And the reason why radar altimeters matter is because they help a pilot know the position of the plane in the air in relation to the ground, right? So Hmm. pretty important thing. And this is particularly important when you're flying into an airport, say, if there's bad weather or a lot of fog, you can't see visually. You're really going to want to know and you're going to depend on this piece of equipment to know where you are in
1: relation to the ground. Um, But it feels like we have been hearing for a very long time that this nationwide rollout of 5G was happening. So why wasn't something done before this to resolve these safety issues sooner?
4: Well, this is one of those things where you've got multiple government agencies, right, that are involved in making decisions here, and they each have different charges, right? The FCC is in charge of the spectrum and 5G. That's the Federal
1: Communications Commission. Federal
4: Communications Commission, and the FAA is involved in aviation safety. The FAA had sent a letter to an agency within the Commerce Department saying, hey, we have concerns about... 5G being activated because there are potential issues about interference with airplane navigation systems, right? And somehow or another, that letter never got acted on. Mm. You know, the FCC will tell you that we were aware of these concerns, we heard from the FAA, and we did our due diligence, and we put in safeguards to prevent this being a problem. The FAA will tell you they didn't think those safeguards were enough. And so it was kind of this sort of strange standoff where the right people weren't talking to the right people, and the information that they needed to get to determine whether or not planes could operate if 5G was fully functional, they weren't getting the information that they needed. So then what happens? December rolls around. There's a lot of concern. The FAA begins saying, we don't have the answer here, so it's possible that some planes aren't going to be able to operate. You know, and airlines, having come off a really difficult holiday season where they had to cancel a bunch of flights and there were delays Mm -hmm. and it was a mess, really didn't want to have to be in this position. So in early January, there was a flurry of communications and the wireless carriers agreed to sort of put this off for two weeks.
1: So then where do things stand now?
4: So, of course, because... Deadlines, right? we got to have deadlines, people, because it's hard to do things without (laughs) deadlines. So on Wednesday— I mean, that's fair. I appreciate that. On Wednesday, Wednesday, 5G is set to go into operation. On Tuesday night, there is an agreement that's brokered by the White House, right? The White House realizes this is a big problem because we can't afford to have these disruptions to air service. So they broker a deal in which AT&T and Verizon agree— to turn on 5G, which is great for folks that want faster wireless, mm-hmm. but not around airports. Okay. Not around a certain number of airports. So that's where we stand now, which is 5G now is activated in 90% of the country, but around certain airports, it's not. And is that like a forever solution? Or are they just no. not going to have 5G around airports? No, that's just a temporary solution until the FAA can figure out whether radio altimeters can operate in areas where there's 5G. So what the FAA has been rushing to do is to look at this equipment on airplanes and figure out, okay, can they operate safely? And if they can operate safely, is there a workaround? So the worry was that when on Wednesday, once the switch went on, we were going to have mass chaos, that there were going to be all these flight cancellations and delays and diversions. There were a very small handful, and most of them have been among regional aircraft. And part of that is because the FAA was able to clear certain aircraft to say, okay, you 737, you can operate safely. So we're okay. So about three quarters of the aircraft that operate in the US have been cleared to operate, but there's still a number of them and they're mostly smaller regional planes that haven't been.
1: I see. But it's funny you say that the FEA is trying to figure out now whether 5G can, in fact, be working safely near airports for all these planes. But, I mean, other countries have 5G, right? And they also have airports and planes. Yes. So how has it worked in other places? Well, other countries do indeed do
4: this. Lots of people cite France as an example. The difference is that those countries have safeguards. They have different safeguards than what we have in the U.S. So they may have bigger buffer zones. 5G may operate on lower frequencies. So that's the issue here, which is they have more safeguards in place that we haven't put into place here in the U.S.
1: So how long can we expect for this to be a thing that we have to be concerned about? I I think that's anyone's guess.
4: The FAA says they're working as hard as they can, right? Already this week, at least three quarters of the planes that operate have been cleared. They did say on Thursday that it's possible that there may be some aircraft that simply won't be able to operate under these circumstances. And then that's going to be an issue, right? If the planes can't fly, Hmm. what's that going to mean? And I think that's the question that regional carriers are very worried about right now, which is if you tell me our aircraft can't operate, It's not like we can go out and buy lots of new aircraft. So, you know, it's possible that some planes could be retrofitted, but I think that's the big question. You know, the FAA is working as quickly as they can, but you want them to be fast, but you also want them to be safe. But, you know, what airline executives at least, or what the industry is telling us, that at least now the right people are talking to the right people the wireless carriers are providing the FAA with the information that they need to do the analysis, which was not necessarily the case
1: before. Laurie, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Laurie Aratani covers aviation for The Post. This story was produced by Maggie Penman. That's it for today's episode of Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was mixed by Sam Baer and Sean Carter. It was edited by Ariel Plotnick and Maggie Penman. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.